Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. So welcome to Peter Fraser of Young Garrett Estate, a producer in McLaren Vale in Australia. I'm very excited to talk with you today. I visited the property about three and a half years ago and it's a really beautiful, interesting property, something that's been revived by uh, Jackson Family Wines, which is based in California, but they do have several properties around the world. And we're going to talk about McLaren Vale and uh, the effect of old vines and also about Roussan as well, which um, Yangara make fantastic examples of. So, Peter, can you introduce yourself and just your background in wine? Um, yes, my name is Peter Fraser. Um, I have been at Yangara, I suppose, since the beginning of the purchase of the property with Jackson family back in uh, December 2001. Uh, I actually joined the Jackson family at the beginning of um, 2001 and kind of we had a 12-month period um, in search for uh, our first uh, property in in Australia and um, prior to that um, I was studied my winemaking at Roseworthy College, which is now the University of Adelaide, and in 1992. And in amongst that, did my first harvest in 95 in um, at the Roseworthy winemaking um, facility. And then 96 and 97 in the Barossa, and, um, and then came back to McLarenbow, actually to Clarendon, not far from where Yangari is at Norman's Wines, in 1998 and um, in amongst that time I I did a vintage in Spain and then uh, with my connection with the the Jackson family I um, did a Syrah project in um, Southern California from 2003 to 2008 so um, and in amongst that have a have a great passion for I suppose medium bodied wines um, Burgundy Barolo um, uh, um, probably my and and obviously Chardonnay to Pup and Grenaches, Spanish Grenaches from say Gredos and and Prirat and uh, and obviously um, you know some of the the iconic wines of Australia. So it's um, been a, a wonderful journey and um, wonderful something. Grenache was a, a big part of this property, and uh, I kind of always felt a great affinity to it. Um, right from the early days of working in this vineyard, uh, which started in 1998. So, yeah, it's, it's been a, um, a, a wonderful, I, I kind of call it a bit of a journey because uh, you, you kind of never at, at your end result. You're always kind of learning and you're always growing and, and, and always, uh, I suppose, honing your craft. Yeah, and that kind of sums up Australia, I think, because there's a lot of history to Australian wine, which I think is reflected in the property, the Yangara property in McLaren Vale, but still kind of refining things and kind of looking back to the past to move to the future. I mean, do you feel that's kind of part of your approach in the property? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. We're, we're very fortunate. There's a, a lovely gentleman um, called Bernard Smart who's, who subdivided a little section off the property. And uh, he and his father, um, and by the way, Bernard is, I think, closer to 90 than he is 80. Yeah, I think he's 85, 86. He still has, has a 10-acre little parcel of Grenache up at Clarendon that he still farms. Uh, he still prunes out in the middle of winter. 
And uh, Bernard and his father planted the 17 hectares or um, 40 or so acres of Grenache, uh, old vine Grenache, uh, with his father and his brother. You know, amazing the, the journey, so, you know, back in the, the 40s and 50s that they picked that Grenache because it was very sandy soil that, that didn't have much, um, I suppose, organic matter. It didn't grow very good pasture. It didn't grow very good crops. Um, and because it was kind of didn't have a lot of, you know, uh, substance to it, but it's, you know, perfect for grapes and perfect for Grenache um, because it, it kind of makes the vine work a little harder. Um, the Grenache is generally quite... Uh, water drought tolerant and um, so they planted it without irrigation um, they they primarily probably planted it because the history was was a lot of fortified wine in that journey in McLaren Vale and uh, probably at that time Grenache represented maybe 50% or more of the varieties grown in the region and uh, to this day now it's only 6% um, so it, it then table wine started becoming more popular and at that time probably as it was in california a lot of the more medium bodied red wines were sold as burgundy and um, they tended to be grenache shiraz blends and uh, then in in the advent probably of the 70s mid 70s that varieties like chardonnay and merlot and cabernet became much more prevalent um and and shiraz and Grenache kind of got lost by the wayside. So the, the tenacity of these old growers, um, they used to sell the grapes to backyard winemakers. A lot of um, Italian migrant um, migrants into Australia, Greek and Italians, um, they were new uh, immigrants into Australia, made backyard wine like they did in Europe. And they were able to sell all their grapes to them. The government had a, a payout to pull out vines because there was such a glut and uh, they wouldn't pull them out and um, kept selling them in the, in a kind of backyard sense, if you like. And uh, we now, uh, you know, feel I, I feel very proud to be the custodians of, of vines that have such wonderful history and I suppose even the tenacity of the owners and, and where they're at now. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I remember visiting Adelaide and the Angara property and there's a lot of suburbs which took over vineyards in the 70s and 80s. So you must feel very fortunate to be able to work with these old vines that survived the, the spread of Ad Adelaide. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, like my grandfather was a grape grower and um, probably only in what McLaren Vale was known back in those days as the Southern Vales. Um, so it, part of that the area closer to Adelaide was, was a lot of vineyards and um, they were taken up by houses. We're also very fortunate that about five or six years ago, um, the the region and and the local government banded together to, to create a preservation act so that the McLaren Vale region can be fully protected against, you know, housing development, which is, a you know, something very important that, that all kind of hold this region in its legacy and, it, and its strength as a as a destination um, that is also so close to Adelaide. Right, so how has McLaren Vale changed in the time that you've been working there? Because it had a reputation more for bulk wine or just grapes were being bought and bottled under other regional entities. Now it feels much more of an ident identity. I remember probably in the 90s 
you know, the Brossa kind of held fort. Um, a bit like, you know, maybe Napa does over Sonoma. But as time goes on and people get greater understanding, um, they understand the differences between the two regions. And um, I think McLaren Vale had a very kind of down-to-earth feeling about it in the fact that it produced everything for everyone, um, whether it was a high quality or, or not. It was just... It was a one-stop shop. You could buy sparkling wine, Sauvignon Blanc, Simeon, um, all sorts of Riesling, and and it didn't necessarily carve itself out a, a an identity. And over the probably, especially the last ten years, I think there's become a lot more focus on on what does very well. I think Grenache and and all those Rhone varieties. Obviously, Shiraz is. I think represents about 50% of the region. So Shiraz is a very strong part of what we do. Gradash has been probably one of the darlings of the region. And the other interesting part is I think less so probably from an international export market, but from a local market in Australia, a huge growth in, in some of the Italian and Spanish, um, what I'd call Mediterranean varieties that kind of are suited to this this we are relative we have a mediterranean climate that kind of is warm-ish um it's not hot but it it really suits those mediterranean spanish italian varieties that have lovely drinkability and um you know so they've they've been quite prolific which which creates wonderful diversity and interest to our region because of our popularity and and also the i suppose the recognition of our quality of our grenache um we kind of chose to to plant varieties, other varieties of interest that were more based around the southern Rhone, so Chardonnay to Park Primary, you know, the Roussan. Um, we've also since planted um, all the other Chardonnay to Park Whites, Grenache Blanc, Picpoul, Bourbalonc, and and thus and the same in the Reds, um, Cunoir and uh, Muscadin, and just to to kind of add out those those really interesting blending and we see with these varieties that they ripen a little bit later and um they tend to miss the the heat in in february which often is our warmest month january february and um so the ripening is kind of caught more in march and sometimes into april so thus this kind of slower slightly um cooler ripening yeah, before we get into the varieties, um, let's talk about McLaren Vale and the geography and the topography of McLaren Vale. So I remember when I visited, I drove from Adelaide, and Yangara is kind of at the top, and then you go down into the, the valley floor. How are ripening conditions different? So as I mentioned before, McLaren Vale is a Mediterranean climate. We're very close to the to the sea, um, although that sea is a, a gulf, so it's kind of quite protected. Um, so it acts as a real moderating effect. And then we're kind of circled by um, hills. And to the east is the Adelaide Hills. And as that elevation um, takes shape, um, also so does the annual rainfall. So as you get into higher elevation, you get slightly higher. And you get generally probably similar daytime temperatures, but, but much colder nights. You get a lot of cold air drainage that comes down from the Adelaide Hills. And Yangara is kind of in the north east of a, a sub region in McLaren Vale called Blewett Springs. 
which is primarily renowned and marked by its very sandy soils. But it also, that, that Blue Springs area tends to kind of capture a lot of this cold air nights. And those cold air nights um, give us a, a delay in, in harvest. So we could probably harvest from two, depending on the season, from two to, to nearly four weeks later than vineyards closer to the coast. Quite opposite to the to the concepts that you might get in California and the coastal vineyards where the ocean's quite cold. Um, closer to the coast are actually, in our parts, are slightly warmer. And is that where you'd find the Italian varieties and maybe even Cabernet Sauvignon? Totally. Um, they, they tend to do quite well like the Italian varieties like Nero Diavola and and um, Vermentino, Fiano, they seem to, to really suit closer to the coast. Um, even little, we see a bit of Sangiovese. But having said that, it's interesting, there's a project in McLaren Vale that, that looks at the, the Shiraz characteristics across all the different districts, including the soil types and also the different microclimate. You tend to see quite rich, powerful Shiraz um, that are a bit riper, a little bit jammier as you get closer to the coast. And then as you head towards um, the hills, Blewett Springs, Clarendon, um, you get to see a little bit more um, spice in Shiraz, um, maybe um, a little bit more prominent tannins that can be a little bit more um, savoury and you start to see some of those lovely herb spices that you that you see in cooler climate, Syrah or Shiraz. And so when you're in the market, how do you distinguish McLaren Vale from other Australian regions? I was talking with somebody recently about this and I think if I had one word is brightness of fruit. There's a there's a real freshness and vitality to McLaren Vale wines, especially when I compare them to say the Brossa. In in Shiraz and Grenache there's a this lovely um, primary in Shiraz, you know, blueberry and and red fruits can can be so alive and and the same there's a just this vibrancy to McLaren Vale Grenache where in some other areas you tend to see a jammier less floral kind of show of that variety and obviously in various different vineyards and different vinifications there's obviously different nuances but um, of the one part I think this this vitality and freshness and vibrancy to the wines is is something that is very much threaded through the region. And do you see a trend in Australia for Shiraz to be less alcohol, a bit more medium body, not the big bulky wines they were maybe twenty years ago? Yeah, look, there's still definitely producers that are renowned for that style, and and I think there's still people out there that do enjoy that style. Um, McLaren Vale was once known as the middle palate of Australian wine, um, where it had this ability to push, if you push the ripening, um, you could get this big juicy sweet fruit. And look, I think there's definitely a place for those wines. And a, but I think, especially to the to the foodies out there, the um, people that are uh, loving, you know, the greater complexity of wines with more savoury character, more tannin structure, but also the understanding that wines of 
maybe slightly lighter body can have just as much flavor and just as much enjoyment um even sometimes me personally I, that's what i get the most joy out of and um mclaren vale picked that little bit earlier and um and some little things you know that extra detail down in the vineyard where you're leaf plucking or or you know managing your wine on skins a little bit longer can can build some wonderful texture and and tannin structure of of these varieties and and i would say that's kind of the future and that's where we're seeing our producers doing i suppose similar things to what we're doing uh are building kind of a lot of accolade and and a lot of following um from that future so there's there's not a definite 100 percent everybody's making one type um but there is definitely a, a very strong movement to those wines which is very exciting. And when you make the wine, do you focus on the grape variety or where it comes from or is it a combination of the two? It's a great question because, you know, I, the Europeans or the, the French and, and the Spanish, you know, care less about the variety and, and more about their site um, and thus their blending um, because they they feel the true expression of, of the site. Um, and I tend to agree with them in some ways. I think across all our varieties, there's some site things that, that show out at Yangara and and some of that are more the, the mineral characters in the wines. Um, we have a, a lot of ironstone, which is a ferrous um, sandstone that's, um, and, and out of that, I, I see in a lot of it, even our Roussan, I see sometimes a sanguine um, iodide character that runs through Grenache, Roussan, Shiraz, um, and is one of those little hallmark flavours characters that, that runs through Yangara. But then varieties, I think, have different kind of behaviours in the way when you make wine. So Grenache requires a much more gentle um, winemaking process than much more akin to Pinot Noir or Nebbiolo. And Shiraz is, needs, say, more air um, because otherwise it can become quite reductive and and it also helps the tannins kind of resolve and blossom. Um, so each of the varieties kind of require their own little way to be handled just i suppose just be like if you've got a bunch of children they've all kind of got the same similar genetics because they've got the same mother and father but you might parent them all slightly differently because you know they've all got a different way of expressing things or um and and so that winemaking then needs to tailor itself to suit so that you get the best expression of them one thing that you have to consider is that you're working with old vines especially grenache so they were already planted on a particular site that may have been not scientifically researched as to why they, they should be planted there. I've got a bottle of the High Sands Grenache. It says on the back, the 1946 original plantings. So how do you deal with old vines that have been there a long time and that you just have to work with regardless? I suppose the wisdom of farming of yesteryear was they kind of simplified, you know, their planting and... Um, you know, the, the sand that they're grown in, as I said, was relatively nutrient poor. Um, the sand didn't grow very good pasture. It didn't grow very good grain crops. I think prior to that, they'd had um, apricot trees in that area 
I'm assuming that the apricots did okay, but but because of their need probably for more water, weren't actually kind of that great. And Grenache is generally planted in those sandiest soils in that in that from that era um, because not much else grew there. <laughs> um, so Grenache kind of found itself just because it was the toughest kind of most drought resistant variety. And and looking after them, it's interesting. I know of vines younger than this block that look much older. Um, they're actually quite small vines because they've grown so slowly in such poor soils. And our biggest thing is is managing disease. So we have quite strong, um, I suppose, quarantine um, systems in place to make sure that our visitors kind of a screen to make sure that they don't bring phylloxera into our area. Um, we also are very careful with our pruning. Um, there's a disease called utypa, um, which is a, like also you might have heard of the name dead arm, which affects old vines, which is kind of like a dieback. And it's a bacteria that's passed around vines by pruning and um, comes from the soil. And those, that dieback can, can cause significant yield loss so they're kind of two of our really big ones but often what's interesting is those vines get to that age they kind of manage themselves to the to the i don't know how they do it you know plants are an amazing thing um but you know hopefully it's the conversations with all the biological activity in the soil that um that say you know we're not going to produce as much fruit this year because it's going to be a dry season um, it's just incredible how they, they kind of set themselves up for success. The, the big part for us as custodians and looking after them is, is providing um, a reasonable amount of organic matter. The vineyard's been certified organic and biodynamic since 2012. We've been farming it that way since 2008. Um, so there's no synthetic chemicals being used or um, both fertilisers or herbicides. And then just putting in, um, I don't like to get caught up too much into all the craziness of biodynamics and organics. But for me, it's it's in simplicity, just about looking after the soil. You know, the words like regenerative farming, looking after the, the plant life other than the vines and um, having... As, and promoting as much um, organic and biological activity in the soil. And that, I think, you know, looking at the vines, um, they're, they're looking healthy and bright. We've had a couple of dry seasons and they've, you know, the last 21 vintage where we had a bit more rain, they've, they've come back, bounced back and looking flush and young and looking like they're about to have their 21st birthday, not their 70th birthday. <laughs> And so um, if an old vine does die, do you just simply replace it with a younger vine or do you use material from the site? Yeah, um, they tend to, um, they don't tend to die. They'll just kind of, so what we'll often have to do is cut them back and just start to build the structure again. So mm. if you do get a die back part of it, try and grow up new fresh growth. And if you do get a a die, you know, a vine that actually dies, which can happen. Um, it's very difficult to get a young vine to regrow. So what they often do is do a thing called layering where they bring a vine from next door 
and actually kind of put it into the ground. It will grow its own roots and then um, grow up another vine. It will always remain connected to that other vine. Yeah, that general is is just taking that a bit of extra time at pruning to make sure there's fresh material coming up from lower down the trunk um, to allow for any of the dieback that can happen. And what about um, vines which you've planted in the last 20 years, like Rusang, that weren't there before? How have you treated them in their youth and how does that differ? We've planted some about the same time as we did the Rusan. We planted some Grenache and we planted them as bush vines. And it's interesting, probably, where are we now? The uh, Grenache is maybe nearly 15 years old. That um, Grenache this year is just starting to produce um, quality that's kind of 90% of maybe the old vines, um, whereas I'd probably say two years ago it was still maybe only 70%. Um, so it's it's coming, and I think it's a function of the size of the roots. Um, and as those vines come along, the other new plantings like Roussan, we've been working on trellis. Um, we've probably have a bit of a different mindset to trellis than some other people of the region. Um, of this in this region, a lot more people tend to just have a sprawling canopy. We like to use um, vertical shoot positioning, which means that every shoot is kind of pushed up between a foliage wise and to be vertical means that we can manicure the the um, canopy a lot more for shade um, or lack of shade so airflow within the canopy it helps in our organic system and um, yeah we're, we're really pleased we're also just recently planting a little more Grenache some of which will do as bush vine and some of which will do as as trellis um, the trellis just enabling us to to make slightly more affordable Grenache um, for rosé and and for earlier drinking styles but um, for the most part, they're they're really suited to this region, and they and they, you know, propagate well and and are relatively. Uh, I, I feel like they're they're quite well adapted to this region. And this wine in particular is from twenty fifteen, and it's really really perfumed and floral, really pretty, like a much richer style of Pinot Noir. I remember when I was in Australia, people were saying to me they're trying to promote Grenache as the Pinot Noir alternative which sounded a bit strange at the time, but at the same time, it's got that colour, it's got that floral, perfumed um, nose to it. And it's very attractive, but obviously, obviously much higher in alcohol. It's interesting, like, Grenache is that, you know, often um, warm climate Pinot. I, I think Pinot Noir, Nebbiolo and Grenache actually have a lot in common in the fact that they're very reflective of the place that they're growing, the winemaking techniques that are imposed on them and um, more so than, say, Cabernet and Shiraz. They they all share little snippets of commonality, and I, I sometimes see a lot more more Nebbiolo-like in, in our um, Grenache, because the tannins. Um, I think one of the, the really distinguishing characters of the high sands that you're, you're drinking now, um, the 15, is um, it also has amazingly high acidity. That's that you don't expect with often Grenache. Some Grenaches tend to be a little bit softer and rounder and juicier. Um, uh, has a, without getting a, getting into a chemistry lesson, the natural acidity in these um, Grenaches is, is quite, it um, surprises a lot of people. And it also leads to the, the longevity of that one. You know, that's now six years old. A lot of Grenaches 
um, that are tend to be quite confectionery, low tannins have kind of already had their day in some ways. Um, this is a Grenache that, although yet pretty and refined, still has this this wonderful structure and um, longevity to it that they will see it, you know, looking much the same way in five or ten years' time. Yeah, I can see why you compare it to Nebbiolo. Again, that, the appearance, but it's got that tannic structure to it as well. It's very firm and gripping with a nice ripe jamminess to it. Before we move on to Rusan, I have a question about um, your sulfur-free wines. I don't know if you're still experimenting with them. But I was working at a wine shop in Napa a few years ago and we tasted the Shiraz, which was sulfur-free, and it was under screw cap. And a winemaker came in and tasted the wine and said, there's no way this is a sulfur-free wine. It's just too fresh. It's too clean. It just can't be possible. And we let him take it back to the lab to analyze it. And he came back the next week and said, they were telling the truth. <laughs> and you just know <laughs> quite how you're getting, how you are doing it. Can you talk about those wines a little bit? Um, that's, that's a great story. Um, I, um, in 2013, um, there, there was a lot of kind of chat on social media and the like about, I suppose, natural wines and um you know and i'm so proud of what we've done from a farming perspective with our organic and biological farming and and um i was keen to explore making some shiraz with with no additions and um try and get back to basics and and see what we could come up with and um so that started the first vintage and i had a philosophy because Tannin, um, tannins from the skins, tannin from the seeds, um, protect the wine from oxidation. And um, so I was kind of like, well, if we, and provided we keep the alcohol a little bit low, um, so those wines are often kind of known, usually not higher than 13.5% alcohol. The, the whole trick to them is to pick them, <laughs> ferment them, um, and, and them to go through the malolactic fermentation and then pretty much bottle them straight away. Um, the, the real piece of technology that some purists might argue against is that we sterile filter them. So we, we filter out any bacteria or yeast in the bottling process. Um, we've also found we were making the wine so reductively, meaning that, you know, without the exposure of any air, they were sometimes a little bit reductive. So we've actually found that we've had to, you know, when we rack the wines off its fermentation lees, off the solids, um, we actually let them splash with a bit of air to, to bring out some of that fruit so that they don't get reductive. And then we, we bottle them. So they're basically wines that are, that are picked and bottled two months after picking. And they're a, a complete non-winemaking, uh, um, you know, there's no fancy winemaking other than bottling them very quickly um and um but i think there's a lot of preemptive stuff it's like when we pick and um lots of technique a bit like a chef that has really great technique just add up all those those really good techniques and you can end up with this really vibrant bright non-sulfured wine and i've tasted some of those wines back to the first vintage and they're still looking bright and alive and 
you know, sell it well. They're not, I think their wines, because they don't have a lot of tannin, I think they're much more suited to early drinking. Um, but they don't kind of, you know, fall over in the bottle. Um, and it was funny, uh, one of our challenges internationally has been kind of building confidence with importers or distributors to be like, this one's not going to go off in your warehouse. It's okay. <laughs> Um, because I think they've been bitten by some of those, those, you know, previous preservative-free wines that are uh, maybe a little bit on the dodgy side. <laughs> yeah, and that's what surprised um, our winemaker friend. He thought, how is this wine standing up? Um, and how, what role does Screwcap play in that preservation? Probably not too much. In an ideal world, um, wines like that might actually be better under cork. Um, because our, our biggest problem with them is sometimes they're a little bit too reductive and screw cap, you know, really reduces any oxygen ingress into the wine. But the screw cap and cork thing has been generally erred onto the side of screw cap because of their, our kind of lack of tolerance to, to cork taint. And our predominant amount of sales is in Australia and it's funny in Australia, you know, probably ninety nine percent of wine is sold in screw cap, and there's no differentiation between cork and screw cap from a um, quality perspective. We went back to doing some cork in some of our um, single block wines for the US, but we found actually we've had really wonderful feedback from retailers and and restaurateurs and sommeliers that actually kind of we're disappointed that we went back to court. Um, so we're actually probably going to keep um, sending uh, Screwcat to the US um, because there hasn't been any kind of untoward consumer feedback against it. And we do a little bit of cork bottling for, for Europe and, and Asia. Um, I'm not too against either. I'm kind of nearly a bit of the opinion, give people what they want. Yeah, I mean, here in the US, I think Australia can be um, a bit of educational sell anyway. And so they're open to trying these wines and screw cap isn't necessarily an issue. But this is from 2015 and it's Grenache and it's under screw cap and it's, it's just so wonderful to know there's not going to be an issue with it. And it takes literally two seconds to open and it's still great. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so let's go on to Roussan. So I tried um, a couple of the Roussan a few weeks ago. It's in 2015 and 2018. Um, uh, what's it called? The Roussan Beauty? And they were fantastic. And it's really interesting to taste two vintages side by side. The 2015 still had um, a lot of freshness and structure, whereas the 2018 tasted obviously a bit more youthful, as you expect. There's kind of an overlap with Chenin Blanc, I thought. Kind of a richer style of Chenin Blanc with that nutty waxiness. Uh, to the wines and absolutely fantastic but i want to it's one of my favorite white grape varieties and of course we're going back to the southern rhone which isn't known for its white wines but they are well they can be absolutely fantastic tell me about your affinity with four roussan why you planted it why you uh, make wine from it at the time um because i was making um syrah in southern california i was coming out to the hospice de rhone um in post paso every year in those early 2000s and um, yeah I, I kind of was excited to see the wines that were being made and um, seeing some of the, the, the French producers coming out and seeing their wines and at the time 
um, a lot of the other Southern Rhone varieties weren't necessarily available and um, Roussan was. And um, so we planted some Roussan. We, um, we probably in the early days, and we still do, we make a, an estate Roussan that's barrel fermented that's um, I'd call probably more similar to, the, to a kind of hermitage style um, that uh, we ferment in, in 500 litre, so larger format puncheons some new oak, etc., And then, um, and, and Roussan has just, it's been a wonderful journey. We've, we've learned that it requires a bit more bunch exposure. Um, so we do a fair bit of shoot thinning and leaf plucking. Um, and then those kind of the bunches get a, a golden kind of brownie skin to them. Um, and, um, that kind of, and they get this lovely lemon character, um, when you're tasting them and that kind of tells me when they're that they're kind of getting ready and then yeah we we've just really loved it and and it's you know i've always admired a bit like you were saying before the you know bocastel probably um villa veins although it's incredibly expensive um such an amazing um variety when it's done well some of the um middle rhone ones the hermitage um I think Eve's Kayuron does some wonderful Roussan. Um, and um, so then I also started messing around with ceramic eggs and fermenting. Um, and I kind of was like, let's do some Roussan on skins. And um, so we, we, which it was a bit of an inspiration of a, of a Australian wine that had been made in a Friuli style, which do a lot of skin contact. Um, with their white varieties, the Italian white varieties. And um, so I messed around with it and it kind of worked. Um, the beautiful richness and the texture that we got out of the skin contact. And then the other part we we're able to do with the skin contact is do a very long maceration, which um, all the tannins kind of start to polymerize together and become this very silky, velvety kind of tannin um, much more akin to say a white a red wine and um, which in, in fact somewhat stabilizes the wine as well from an aging perspective and then but what we found was that wine looked a little bit flat and and lacked a bit of perfume so we we kind of uh, had already just as part of the trial we had Roussan that we just pressed um, had not had any skin contact. So it was very vibrant and lifted and perfumed. And um, we blended the two of them together. So we kind of got a bit of best of both worlds of the fragrance and freshness, and also the power, texture and, and richness out of the skin contact. Thus, um, in 2000, we made our first vintage of that wine in 2013. Um, and that 15 that you tried um, is one of my favourites. It's a, it's so vibrant, um, and still again six, six years old, um, and the eighteen would, was was very equal. One of the things we have to be very careful is picking that wine early, and also while we do the skin contact, to be careful to try and we do it by just storing the wine colder um, to stop malo going through to keep that freshness and vibrancy of the wine on skins. But it's been a very quite a small. We don't make huge amounts. We only produce 150, 200 dozen 
um, per annum of that wine, um, but um, of of which each year is has wonderful popularity. So it was out in Australia each year. I remember visiting the tasting room in in um, Yangara and just being like, wow, this wine's amazing. And then it's really exciting to try them again. Um, just really good examples of matching, I think, great variety to climate. Busan is well suited to the warm Mediterranean climate of the Southern Rome. So no surprise that it's well suited to the climate of McLaren Vale. Um, and since that time, that's given us confidence to um, planted probably six or seven years ago, our first Grenache Blanc. And um, where um, and and Pig Paul and um, Bourbonlanc and Claret, and so we're we're also messing around um, with a wine, with which will also blend with Roussan, so the classic Chardonnay white blend, um, which will be very interesting. I, we're releasing our first blend to the US of that next year, so it'll be very exciting. And where do you get the cuttings from for all these um, varieties? So it's been actually we. I, back to those days when we planted the Roussan and I said, you know, I was coming to to the Hospice to Rhone event and um, I was very excited to be planting all these varieties and they didn't exist in Australia at that time other than Roussan. We were working with a nursery because there isn't much phylloxera in Australia. Um, there's very strict quarantine laws and um, so the, the import process is very slow. So the nurseries will bring in maybe 10 cuttings that will go through a three-year quarantine process. Um, they'll be tested for any disease, virus, etc., cetera. And, um, and then they have to then start uh, multiplying prop- propagation. So um, it can often, from the first time a, f- a clone, new clone or a new variety comes into Australia, it can be often seven or eight years before the variety actually has enough um, for commercial planting, so we we haven't actually done any of it ourselves, but we've um, been kind of waving our hands. Usually, if you wave your hands up and down and prepared to pay enough, you you can get a new variety um, in the nurseries. Will kind of make it happen for you. And just to go back to McLaren Vale, is this a trend that's common in McLaren Vale or even across Australia with uh, white roan varieties? Or is it just something that you've really focused on? Look, when we first started making Roussan, there was maybe five Roussans in Australia. There might now be 20. <laughs> um, so, look, it's it's had a lot of growth, but it in the scheme of things compared to, you know, mainstream varieties like Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay, it's still minuscule. Um, it's still a very tiny variety. Um, in McLaren Vale... It has surprised me that the Rhone varieties haven't been more prevalent. The Italian varieties have probably been um, more prevalent. That doesn't concern me too much because I think the variety, you know, variety is a is a great thing, um, and um, and nice. Sometimes it can be a bit of a problem when everybody's kind of jumps on the same bandwagon and your little niche has been kind of. Um, not made a niche anymore, so um, I'm I'm very confident of the way the wines present themselves, their their uniqueness and what they do. And yes, they've they've increased a little bit, but not a huge amount. Well, it's, white roan is still a niche category in itself, let alone grown in other countries too. It is. It and is. It's a similar situation in California where there's a handful of producers <laughs> making is. very good roussan, and you think, well, why don't more people do it? Because 
the climate's ideal, but it, the market yeah. doesn't really know those wines too well. Yeah. But I hope um, in this podcast yeah. we've uh, advertised yeah. Roussan as being fantastic. Uh, the the Yangara Roussans, I absolutely recommend if you can find them on the market. And um, a good overview of McLaren Vale, I think, a really interesting Australian wine region, which isn't necessarily reinventing itself, but is kind of moving forward um, with, with the times. So thank you, Peter, for... Um, joining me on the podcast. I think we've learned a great deal. It's fantastic to talk to someone in Australia. I wish I could talk to you in person, but this is the next best thing. It is great. And I look forward to hopefully in a few years time and either getting over there or getting you back here <laughs> and and maybe seeing some of some of your listeners um, into our cellar door. So it's a, it's a wonderful um, place to visit. Lots of um, other than wine things to do as well, beaches and wonderful restaurants and great places to stay. Well, that's the thing about Adelaide as well. It is a great wine city because it's just surrounded by wine regions. It's it's kind of like San Francisco here in California. You drive 30 minutes and you're in a wine region making fantastic wine. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. No worries. Thank you.